This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Today, I'm speaking with Ryan Chonky of Aria Portland Dry Gin in Portland, Oregon. Now, we usually go to very new, just getting established craft distilleries for our discussions. Today, we're at a really, really new craft distillery that is still largely under construction, even though the brand is established. So if anyone hears any background noise, please forgive us. It's an active construction site right now, but it, uh, can't wait to see it when it finally opens. So with that said... Ryan, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Welcome to Portland. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for getting the sunshine out here and everything. This is great. It's perfect. The trees are blooming. It's March now, but the trees started blooming in February this year, which is ridiculous. Incredible. And sorry, everyone back east. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, before yeah. we, everyone I, tunes us I guess us I off. should mention that I've been wearing shorts and flip-flops for the past month. Oh my God, you should not say that. <laughs> <laughs> so to those who are left, who haven't thrown their uh, computers or iPads uh, through the window, Ryan, tell me about Aria. What are you building out here in Portland? So Aria is a result of four years of trial and error in recipe development. I was born out of the need being a bartender for a really classic London dry style gin, something with that sensibility of balance and traditional juniper forward flavor profile. And what I really wanted to do uh, behind the bar was transition to a very, very local product mix behind the bar and for our cocktail program. Oh, okay. And what I didn't really find was everybody was trying to do these new Western, modern American gins that are really kind of pushing the envelope of what gin should be. And, and I think it's in a great way. But what I found was a lot of these gins, you really have to kind of massage into a cocktail specifically designed for them. And what I didn't see was a really classic, well-executed, well-balanced gin on the market that was made domestically by a craft distillery yeah. that really lent itself well to the classic vintage cocktails that are regaining popularity and certainly something that has that flexibility that you can put it into a classic martini. It's going to satisfy a martini drinker. Uh, it's going to work well in things like Pegu Clubs and Aviation, Last Word. So it really hits the right notes for classic cocktails as well. So the idea was versatile, classic style gin, but made by a domestic craft distillery. So a real local option to Tanqueray Beef Eater, Bombay, and Plymouth. So that's where it really came out of. Me being a bartender, not finding the gin that I wanted to work with. Yeah, and I definitely wanted to take a much deeper dive into your product itself. But just from a 10,000-foot perspective, I assume you weren't born into distilling. You're not a third-generation rum runner or anything like that. Why open a craft distillery? I basically needed to find a way to write off my alcohol problem. <laughs> okay. and, and that's sort of what we found. I, I, just I don't succ- know which program recommends <laughs> that step. <but> uh, <laughs> I succumbed yeah. to the urge to be broke and drunk all the time. <laughs> it's really worked out well on both levels. Nice. I have about $4, but that's two in the afternoon. I've got a nice little buzz going. So uh, <laughs> yeah, no, things are going well. I actually did have a little bit of background in fermentation science. Oh, really? Uh, I was actually going to school for fermentation science originally. I was working in a brewery professionally at age 20. Whoa. I started making beer in high school uh, at age 17. So I guess the statute's right out on that one. Right? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, you can say it now. But, yeah. But my, my father. So you were the most popular kid in high school. <laughs> when the beer turned out well. Yeah. But, you know, as a 17 year old, that doesn't always happen. Right. I was fortunate enough to have a father that immigrated from Europe where drinking doesn't have the same cultural taboos as it does here. And so drinking is part of everyday life and everyday culture. So when my dad saw that I wanted to make beer, it wasn't just to get drunk. It was really because I was fascinated by the art and science behind it and how it worked. And I wanted to break it down into like, what's happening here? Where does this come from? And so he was supportive of it. And so it was really cool. And so I ended up changing my major for fermentation science into advertising, marketing, and graphic design, and just kept plugging away behind the bar to put myself through school. Bartending translated into some friends starting a distillation project that I got somewhat involved with that's no longer existing. So this, okay. is, our second, <laughs> this is our second iteration. Oh, really? Uh, okay. So, so we're basically picking up the pieces from the first one. And a lot learning. of the lessons that you kind of learned that first time uh, yeah, around. Yeah, and... the way I like to say it, we learned a lot from the first mis- first time. We made a lot of mistakes. We learned okay. from those. And so this time we're going to screw everything up completely differently. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> At least you're going in there with the right mindset. Yeah, you know? yeah. exactly. We're not making the same mistakes. We're going to make colossal, Whole new, ones, colossal yeah. new ones. Well, this exactly. is going to be a very informative discussion then. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, we're sitting here in the heart of Portland, Oregon, which I'm sure most people know is one of the main nexuses of the craft and handmade goods movement. Everywhere you go, it's just crafty things and all locavore, very, very locavore-centric products. And that's kind of the brand of Portland. 
And a whole bunch of large brands are also trying to attach their names to what it means to be craft and what it means to be handmade. I'm always just kind of interested, what does this term craft really mean to you? Because you are a craft distiller. You do do things by hand. Oh, absolutely. And it's kind of an interesting question because this is probably one of the most hotly debated things in distillation right now. Everyone naturally draws this analogy to craft brewing in the 80s. And I don't necessarily think it's exactly analogous because what we saw in the 70s were three big companies that made, for all intents and purposes, the exact same product, a flavorless beer. Enter Sierra Nevada, Bridgeport, Widmer, all of a sudden you have flavor, you have color, you have bitterness, you have styles, you have all these options now. Beer and can it, taste like something. Exactly. Yeah. It was a revelation. Where in distilling, if I sit here and say, because I'm small batch, I'm better than Beefeater, I'm blowing smoke. And anyone that knows what they're talking about knows it. Plymouth is an incredibly good product. Beefeater is an outstanding gin. I can't sit here and say, oh, they're big guys, so they make garbage. That argument just doesn't hold water. The big distilleries make excellent product. Yeah, Buffalo Trace is one of the biggest whiskey companies on the planet. They make an outstanding whiskey at $26. So for us to come in here, what we have to make sure that we're doing is innovating, doing something unique and different. Most importantly, we have to make sure that what we're putting out is absolutely on par with the consistency and quality of what the big people are doing. We're not going to make it if we just sit here and say, oh, well, I make less than 10,000 proof gallons a year, so I'm craft and I'm better. That argument just doesn't work and the consumer's not going to buy it. They're smarter than that. So the term craft, yeah. Maker's Mark is a craft product, in my opinion. I know the guy that uh, made it for the last 17 years, and he cares about his product with the same passion that all of us small guys do. So craft, I think, is anything where somebody you know puts the love and the time and effort and the talent and skill into it, whether it's big or small. To simply define it as, well, I make this in a bathtub or a garage, right. so it's craft. <laughs> that just doesn't quite hold water mm -hmm. in the analogy that people draw between beer and spirits. Right. And craft doesn't inherently equal good. And that's another one of the problems. I think it's a very sexy, hot, trending industry to be in. And you have a lot of people that don't have any idea what they're doing jumping into this game. And unfortunately, one of the things that scares me is how many really bad small spirits are out there. People haven't taken the time to develop or, or don't come from a background with some culinary experience where they have a trained palate, where they understand flavors and balance and things like that. So there are unfortunately some low-quality products coming out of the craft distillation. The market will weed those out. So, right. so that's going to happen. There will be a big shakedown. It's inevitable. And in that way, it is kind of analogous to craft beer, which is kind of going through its retraction period now after 20 well, years of Well, it went growth. through a big one in the 90s, yeah. too. That's when I was looking at getting into craft brewing oh, gotcha. and, and just watching the big shakedown here and realizing there's not going to be another big regional brewery coming out of the area. They're all going to be small neighborhood brew pubs. And, yeah. and it was a big, big shift in the way the uh, market worked. And there's going to be another big one. Right now, I think it's conglomeration. Big brands are buying other brands and people like Anheuser-Busch are buying people like Ten Barrel and, mm -hmm. and obviously bought Widmer and uh, Red Hook. So you're going to see mergers, acquisitions a lot in the brewing industry. We're not quite there yet with some of these smaller brands, but you are starting to see some of the ones that have been around for a while being acquired. You know, yeah. Hudson's a great example. They've made a great whiskey in New York and now they're uh, part of a bigger company. I, yeah. I don't have the which one exactly off the top of my head. Yeah, But you're right. As new as craft distilling is and, and small batch craft distilling is, independent craft distilling it hasn't been around that long, but it has been around just long enough to where the big boys are starting to take notice of They're you guys. Just and becoming aware of yeah. it. And, and, and yeah, so are the consumers. There's still so many people here in Portland that I'm blown away that when they say, oh, there's distilleries here? There's there's local <laughs> local spirits? Really? Yeah, I'm yeah. blown away by how many people uh, <laughs> still aren't aware. Because there's more than one here. <laughs> well, yeah. I think last count, we had about 25 in the greater Portland metro. Wow. And the last time I looked at Kentucky had, I think, 22 DSPs in the entire state. <laughs> okay. now, now, of course, each one in Kentucky is making millions yes. of gallons. So, <laughs> sure. Yeah. That's not exactly a fair, fair mm -hmm. uh, comparison. But, but yeah, in the Portland metro area, we've got about 25. Where wow. the state of Oregon's up to, I think, 60 or 70, which is one of the um, one of the highest concentrations in the country. Yeah, and so, I mean, I think that puts um, new kinds of pressure on you, too, as you're just getting your own distillery up and running that. Not only are you running up against the big boys when it comes to your gin, distilling is going to be a tourism driver for Portland, and you have to make sure your space stands out to tourists also to get Absolutely. people in here, get that foot traffic, because you aren't the only one here. That is one of the things that actually helps us. So yeah. The location that we're sitting at right now, like we were talking about, Bull Run is one of the biggest and most well-known, uh, well-regarded distilleries in the uh, state. Mm -hmm. They're two blocks south of here. That's where we've been making the Aria for the last two and a half years. Yeah. So we're transitioning out into our own production space, but we're keeping it two blocks away. And then Clear Creek is the oldest craft distillery in the state of Oregon, also one of the biggest and most well-respected. And they're three blocks away, and we're all good friends. And so if I just set this up someplace 
as the one and only, I would get a certain amount of people coming here. But this way, we have this little area where somebody wants to go see three craft distilleries within a 10-minute walk of each other, you come here. And so we're all going to help each other out by drawing tourism. And that's how we look at it in Portland as well. We all work well together. We all help each other out. We borrow a cup of sugar, borrow ingredients from the neighbors, and we get together and have drinks on the weekends. We're all friends. And we really work together sharing advice, sharing tips, sharing vendors, things like that. Because what we realize is we don't even have 1% of the market right now in Oregon. Uh, Oh, really? The Portland distillers. I, yeah. I think local spirits account for about 6% of the market here in Oregon. But we still have such a small percentage of what's going on that it's not about buy mine instead of buy my neighbors. It's if you're not going to buy mine, buy it from my neighbor. Absolutely. Because the more people we get aware that there's local spirits and there's good local spirits here, the more people we all have as a consumer base. Yeah. And so the idea is you know, no one's going to drink gin all the time. You know, People are going to want whiskey. Buy the whiskey from my neighbor instead of importing it. Buy the brandy from my neighbor instead of importing yeah. If you don't like my gin, well, buy Tom's gin across the street, uh, across the river at New Deal. He makes a great gin too. Buy aviation. Buy something that's made locally. And that's the idea. We can all help each other out by just building this awareness in yeah. general. Like give craft a chance. Like, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's it, about changing buying habits and buying patterns of the consumer too. Yeah. And we're still in the awareness yeah. building phase at this point. We're not even to changing buying habits. We're, we're still building mm-hmm. awareness, which hmm. is the step that happens before changing the yeah. buying habits. So the exciting thing about that is, you know, as well as we're doing, that we're ready to move into our own space like this. Yeah. There's still so much more opportunity out there. People say, when are you going to come up with another product? Why? If there's still a bar that doesn't have Aria, if there's still a consumer that hasn't bought it for their house, then I have more possibility with Aria that I haven't fully realized. Right. So, Once every bar in the United States has Aria behind the counter, then move on to another product. Yeah. <laughs> well, I kind of want to talk about your origin story a little bit, because as you've kind of alluded to, you know, you're in a fairly unique place right now. And I think your growth and the model you've taken to getting open is something that I don't know if a lot of emerging distillers ever really consider. You've built the Aria brand over the last few years, and you've done it while leasing or borrowing space from the Bull Run Distillery. And now that you're on the precipice of getting your first distillery up and running, I'm just curious, what was it like running a distillery in someone else's space? There's pros, there's cons, I'm sure. It was a great way to get started without having to front a whole bunch of capital to buy a still and go through all the permitting process for a product that may not work. I mean, thank God for you, it did. What was that process like of even finding a space and then working around someone else's One of the tricks was having that opportunity in front of you. And Lee was involved with House Spirits. He founded House Spirits over in Southeast Portland. My business partner and I, Eric, founded Artisan Spirits, and we were at the opposite ends of Distillery Row when, when that was conceived in 2008. So we were already on the same end of the distillery row and we became friends. I was a bartender at the time, so I was working with Lee's product and liked spending time at the distillery. So we had a friendship that goes back long before a business relationship. And that's really what the partnership is rooted in. So the trick is not everyone's going to have that opportunity. But what happened with Bull Run when Lee left House Spirits to found Bull Run, the shift was to focus on Brown Spirits, which is what they're doing there. Over some cocktails talking about what he's doing next and what we're doing next, I think it was 2010, we realized, well, he's going to have a big distillery with a lot of production capacity that's brand new and not being fully utilized as they grow into their own space. We're doing white spirit. We're not doing whiskey. He's not doing chin. So we have two products that don't really step on each other's toes. They don't overlap and they're not competing for the same market segment. And so it just became this logical partnership where we move in there. We do our production there when they're not using the equipment. That offsets some of their overhead when their production is just getting started and they still have the full rent to pay and everything. So we help them out by offsetting some of their overhead. And then, of course, they help us out because we can get the product to market without the capital investment up front. We can prove the brand at market. We can create some sales history. We can create a track record. We can create a forward-moving sales trajectories. And we can get basically some brand loyalty built. We can enter some other markets. And that's what pretty much what we've done. So it's been a tremendous opportunity. It really... I'm not sure it would have been possible without that. But what one of the things we learned the first time was that we built a small distillery. The idea was start small, affordable equipment, scale up as we go. And I think that's kind of the mentality of a lot of people. And that was really hard because we were literally doing 16, 18-hour production days in shifts. Uh, oh, really? just, just to make a very, very tiny amount of product. And what we found is if we're sitting there doing the production constantly, continuously yeah. running the stills, there's no time to build the brand. There's no time to get your name out there. There's no time to go out and shake hands and kiss babies. There's no time to travel to other markets supporting the brand. There's hardly even time to run the business. Mm-hmm. And so you literally had that problem of you were building perhaps the greatest spirit ever and no one was ever going to hear about it because your facility was keeping you 
We were shackled to the yeah. still. Right. And so what Lee's done, uh, he had the same problem with his first distillery, constant production to keep up with it. He intentionally built two very, very large stills so that production can be handled quickly and efficiently and the rest of the time can be focused on running the business and building the brand. And that's really it. Like you said, it doesn't matter how good a quality spirit you make. If you can't get it in front of somebody and get it into someone's mouth, well, it's a hobby. Yeah. You know? at, at that and point, and that, right. that's what it is. No one's going to buy it if they don't know about it. So you do have to spend the time building the brand. And so our idea here, again, is we can distill once a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, once every two months and then really spend the rest of that time going to places like New York where we want to build the brand and grow the brand, spend time meeting people and shaking hands and telling our story. We just got back from a trip to Texas. So we're going to be entering that market now and oh, wow. we're going to have to be going down there just to say hi to people. They don't want to talk to a sales rep. They want to talk to the distiller. Who's so, actually making this. Yeah. Exactly. And so we're going to have that time to do that. And that's the idea of building something where we can meet demand very quickly and efficiently and then spend the rest of the time focused on the other things that have to happen to make this business viable. Very cool. So when the time came for you to move into this space and start seeking out new investors, new investment, new capital to rent and remodel or tear down and then rebuild as the case may be in in your new distillery that we're sitting in, having that kind of sales history and that track record, it was probably a little bit easier to go and ask for a new round of investment for this huge expansion because you are a proven product. It's, it's huge. There's, yeah. two, there's two things that come out of that. Yeah, we have at this point three years of tax records. Okay. And so the bank is eager to lend to us now. We have two and a half years of sales history. Mm-hmm. And so we can say we have the brand in 10 other states. This is how well it's doing in 10 other states. This is how well it's doing here in Oregon. We're one of the top three selling craft brands in the state of Oregon. And we've been that for the last two years. So we have that. We've entered competitions and judgings aggressively, and we've won gold in every national judging we've ever entered in. Hmm. So now we have the critics behind us. We have the consumers behind us. And... We have the media behind us. We've been getting some great press and we continue to get great press. So now we can go down to anybody and say, well, no, we're not some startup. We're not trying to, well, we're technically still in the startup phase if you look at it from a financial standpoint, but we're not an unproven product with no track record. Will this product work in the market? Are the consumers going to take to it? Mm -hmm. We can say, yes, Yes. here we are. Now all we have to do is not mess things up colossally and continue doing what we're doing. And we can forecast financials for five years out. Mm-hmm. Because we have three years of history that we can base that on. We're yeah. not just pulling numbers out of the clouds and hoping. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can say, this is how we forecasted next year. It's because the growth from this year to this year to this year was X. Yeah. And so we, we applied that. So it does make that much easier. It's a huge factor to it. The other thing that's nice is that we have revenue at this point. So as opposed to a startup where you're yeah. going to be burning through a lot of cash because everything's an expense until you can really start to get that revenue stream established, we have positive cash flow. Okay. And so when we're talking about investing, we're not necessarily talking about covering operational losses or working capital. We're talking about TI and equipment. Mm. And it takes a lot of the pressure off of you too to know that you have this kind of, to just for your own person, you, you have to eat, you have to pay for your house. Well, I haven't so, figured out how to do that yet. Okay. <laughs> We'll get to that eventually. We'll get to that eventually, sure, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's still a trick. Okay. (laughs) But the nice thing is I can expense restaurants uh, as as, um, brand building and sales trips Mm -hmm. and the market support. (laughs) So, So I do have that at least. Since this is your second go-around at starting a distillery, what's been your biggest hurdle this time around to getting started? This time around, the two biggest hurdles, early on, I had my full-time job managing and bartending at yeah. Wild, Wildwood Restaurant around the corner here, formerly Wildwood Restaurant. And then my business partner works for the U.S. Department of Justice during the daytime. And so he has his day job. I had my night job. So not being able to put as much time and effort into it early on was a challenge. But luckily, we again had a place where we could do two months worth of production in one day. Mm. And then we could spend our spare time getting out and building the brand. But fortunately, we've had great brand evangelists and a lot of people were behind us and supported us. And that's just part of being part of the uh, restaurant bar community here in Portland. So we really had a a big leg up there. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely been a challenge not being able to dedicate full-time to it in the first couple of years. Unfortunately, Wildwood closed a year ago. And so I've gone to doing this full-time now. Okay. It kind of pushed you into the deep end. Yeah, like, here, this is now your full-time yeah, job. Yeah, didn't really yeah. have much of a choice. Uh, yeah. But it's been, it's been a blessing as much as it felt like a curse up front. Yeah. Uh, it's been a blessing because we found this space literally a month later. Oh, really? In, oh. in last March. Signed the lease in August, so everything was, my time was fully consumed. Mm-hmm. Rewriting our business plan, making sure all of our numbers were tight, ready to present to banks and investors, making sure that the space was feasible from all the different code and compliance standpoints, yeah. from a financial standpoint, based on what we were going to have to do. So my goal completely shifted into making this space work. And we jumped the gun on this a little bit from a purely financial standpoint. Okay. But the space is just too good. The location's too yeah. great. We couldn't pass up 
We couldn't pass up the location. So let's, we let's know talk we about that a little bit. Yeah, this location does seem great. You have fantastic foot traffic. I'm always kind of curious with people who open up urban distilleries. I imagine the code compliance and the paperwork is just that much greater because... Well, that coming back to our second biggest hurdle yeah. has been, unfortunately, the city of Portland okay. and, and the code and the compliance. What we're looking at here is basically a four-week interior TI project. So we're adding a little bit of plumbing, the necessary electrical, some floor drainage. Yeah. And, and then the Most rest, importantly, the rest the is pretty much drainage. cosmetic, fire sprinklers. But to get through from when we signed the lease to when we uh, actually took the keys, or um, so the permits were approved, took fully six months. And it's basically a four four-week-long build, which is kind of absurd. We've had to deal with the city not knowing what they're doing as far as regulating distilleries. They've told yeah. another distillery, well, we're still learning, which, wow. okay, fine, be learning, but don't do it at, at your expense. At, yeah. at the expense of the distillery that's trying to get licensed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's been a challenge. Yeah. It's such a new industry that I don't think they necessarily know how to enforce the code. And unfortunately, Portland doesn't seem to indicate that they are excited to have any kind of business anywhere. <laughs> okay. Uh, like, so are they, they even behind it? Can, yeah. I can't imagine how mm-hmm. they would be. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's been crazy. We're 40000 over budget, not including the additional rent that we've blown through while we are sitting here waiting for permits. And, yeah. And it makes it very, very difficult. I bet. I mean, it makes it incredibly difficult. So this is why I don't sleep at night okay. right now. And we finally got the permits approved last week. Even then, we had to fight them on the cost because they jacked up tacked on some things, inflated some prices, and as soon as we called them out on it, mm-hmm. they, they relented. Yeah, I didn't order the clear code on my permit, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't well, need any of the accessories. I, I, I have a tree permit, and this is an interior project. Wait a sec, uh, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, that okay. one's not worth arguing about. It's, yeah. it's $100, it's going to cost me more to fight it. Don't okay. have to just, <laughs> like, pay, let's just get this. pay for a tree permit on the inside. So, <laughs> yeah, sure, um, and then figure out a way to use it. Yeah, <laughs> And, you know, as bad as Portland code and permitting is, their slogan is the city that works, and our joke is the city that works you over. Okay. <laughs> um, as bad as it is, I'm sure it's probably as bad in other places, mm-hmm. too, especially for an industry like this, which you are dealing with some hazardous and potentially dangerous products. That's why I always like to ask this question, because it's always interesting to hear what everyone's experiences are, whether they're the first distillery to ever open up in their municipality and people treat it like it's a high hazard thing. Oh, my God, you need to be on the outskirts of town, like as far away from civilization as possible. Or some people say some municipalities are super easy. So it's just always good to get a nice feel. Yeah. Uh, and and the reality is if, you, if you're responsible and, and, and know what you're doing mm-hmm. and put the right safety measures in place. It's really not dangerous. It's dangerous when you have no idea what you're doing. You're not careful. You're not cautious. And I've seen people smoking in distilleries before. Whoa. And I'm just blown away by that. Yeah. I've, I've not seen, literally. I've <laughs> seen people put together stills themselves that just are not compatible as far as the amount of pressure. And it resulted in an explosion. Wow. So, so, so some of the concern is it, valid. It, but. Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. But it needs to be dealt with in a way that's quick, consistent. There's not been any consistency. That's, what, that's the, kind of one issue. of the biggest challenges. Yeah. You know, what, are you, what are we going to expect? It needs to be dealt with in a way that's consistent and professional and takes into account that, yes, this is a business. And if we have to put a million dollars into this space, it's not going to work, period, and okay. we're out. And that's it. And just an amount of money that we can reasonably justify to the, an investor. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And that has to be considered as well. You know, there, there needs to be some logic and reason applied to it as opposed to just throwing every code in the yeah. book at us and treating us like we're a petroleum chemical refinery <laughs> in the Gulf, of Ala- uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Right. That doesn't make sense either. Even though it's distilling, it's a much different process and a much different right. just setup. Yeah. So it's been a challenge, but we finally persevered and made it through it, mm-hmm. thankfully. And so... And did you use a consultant or, or anyone to help you with the paperwork, or did you just kind of <laughs> put your head down and work through it yeah, yourself? Yeah, actually, uh, actually, somebody at the city of Portland sent us to this consultant that basically we fired after the first <laughs> meeting, and okay. uh, I'm pretty sure there was some sort of a I'm not Anyways, names, obviously, uh, but I'm yes. pretty sure there was some sort of a thing happening there. <laughs> well, we basically if you go to this guy, you'll get it approved in no everybody time. Everybody else that's worked with this guy has also sacked him after the first thousand dollars worth of wasted money, and so we had to find a new guy and, and yeah. start all of it from scratch, and that cost us two weeks and thousands of dollars. But, you know, we want to do it right more than anything. We want to do it correctly. Yeah. We want to do it you safely, want to be responsible. responsible. Yeah. I'm the one that's going to be here every day. Mm-hmm. I don't want to die a fiery death. Right. No, absolutely <laughs> not. So yeah. we want to do it right. We want to do it correctly. We want to be responsible. So we want, we do. We want to hire the right fire engineer that knows the code that can help us make sure that we're safe, that my employees and my guests and my customers here are going to be safe. That's number yeah. one. And we obviously hired an architect that has Plenty of experience. He worked with Tom over at New Deal. He worked oh, with Goldman. Okay. He worked with Clear Creek. So we also wanted to make sure that our architect has experience in the code specifically as it relates to our industry. And so we made sure that we hired the right people that know fire code and know the building code for our industry. And, and yeah. it still took six months to permit a four-week-long 
yeah. build out. So, <laughs> for what is just a four week so, yeah, yeah. If anyone's listening for advice, lots of extra <laughs> rant and extra TI budget. <laughs> you will use it and yeah, then some. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit how you promote yourself. Since you already have a production running somewhere else, what are the main ways you get people to find out about Aria? Is it a lot of online promotion? Just I, a lot of I am feeding the street? At Facebook, if you've ever looked at my Instagram or Facebook, it's not good. Um, <laughs> it's not good. It's one of those things that's such a struggle for me. What I need to do is hire a teenage girl to follow me around and tweet stuff. Just tweet. That, yeah, that would <laughs> yeah. make sense. But we definitely try to use the social media as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Facebook is now winding down organic reach to nothing. So post something to your thousand followers and like two people see it now. So it's time to rethink how the whole social media right, thing is going to work using. and how it's going to work. We're too small. We're too new to really put a whole lot of money into measure media at this point. We are planning on that as we grow. But at this point, it's more effective for us to grill the market, get out there and just beat the street. And unfortunately, in Portland and even in Oregon, you know, one of the things that really has helped us out is, is our connections to the service industry. You know, yeah. Being a 17-year bartender, I know a lot of people and that's certainly gotten a foot in the door and it's been a big help. We've been lucky enough to have a great fan base. You know, people have just latched on to Aria and made it theirs and, and they evangelize the brand. They talk about it. the word of mouth is phenomenal. And you really can't oversell word of mouth, right? If a customer goes into a bar and asks for Aria gin and the bartender doesn't have it, they don't want to say no to a customer right. so they're going to make sure they have it for the next time right. that customer and, and, goes and, in and, there. And that's it. Word of mouth is the single most credible way to promote a brand. I can go out there and tell you how beautiful my baby is, but everyone says their baby's beautiful, don't they? No one says, wow, right. look, at, look at this. I got an ugly baby. <laughs> everyone says their baby's beautiful. And so if I go out there and say, hey, this is the greatest gen ever, never mind that it isn't, they're just going to be sitting there thinking, okay, yeah, this is yeah. the sales rep. Okay, sure. this guy's paid to sell this, <laughs> or he's the brand owner. Of course, he's going to say his baby's beautiful. Yeah, you know, I can put a glossy ad with a bunch of scantily clad women into every magazine <laughs> like some of the bigger liquor brands do. Yeah. And, and again, that's... Living the that, Aria lifestyle. That, yeah, yeah, that just doesn't play well in a market like Portland. Mm-hmm. I, it just doesn't play well with how we represent the brand and who we are either. And it really doesn't say anything about what we do. And so for us, that word of mouth is genuine. When somebody says, you got to try this because I love it. I tried this and it's great. That is a genuine, that's a, that's a friend of yours telling you that has no vested interest in what we're doing here, that they think it's special. And that I think has been a huge factor towards our success. I can't underestimate how great our fan base has mm-hmm. been at evangelizing the brand and just getting that word out. That's amazing. So let's now step away from the 10,000 foot view and talk about what you do make. Let's talk about Aria uh, more in depth now. So it's a London style gin. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Talk to me about that. What are you trying to highlight in Aria? Once I look past all of the gold medals that it's won. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, that's not something we try to highlight. We really like to okay. think that kind of backs up that we've done what we're trying gotcha. to do relatively well. The three words we really use to describe this are depth, complexity, and balance. And the idea is that, like I said, I, being a bartender, I was looking for a gin that was really something that I wanted to make cocktails with. Mm-hmm. And not just something I could experiment with and play with, but something that also I could plug into classic vintage cocktail recipes. Okay. And it would be a proper fit. Yeah, so not one of those gins where it takes 13 other ingredients to really bring out the subtleties exactly. of it. Yeah. And like I said, one of the cool new things that we're really seeing right now is this evolution. Gin's always been an evolution from Geneva to Old Tom to London Dry to the New Western style. It's always been evolving, but what I really saw was the total predominance of this New Western style of gin out there. And so we wanted to say, okay, well, let's just go back a step. Kind of like Ransom went back a step and said, let's bring Old Tom back. Let's make an amazing Old Tom. Well, we said, all right, well, let's step back from the New Western style and let's go back to making a classic London and dry. And one of the things we want to make sure is we don't want to taste like Tanqueray or Beefeater. Right. But we want to be in that same ballpark stylistically. Okay. You like know? have a good go-to for a martini or something exactly, like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And something that would really work well for a gin drinker. And if you're a martini drinker, this would make a great martini that is something you would want to enjoy. Mm-hmm. So it's recognizable as, as gin to a classic gin drinker. So when we say depth, complexity, and balance, we wanted to go back to all classic ingredients. So all of the 10 ingredients, we put them on the front of the bottle. We're very open and candid about what those are. They're all things you would find in English gin. So nothing wacky, nothing unusual, no cucumbers, no flowers. <laughs> we're not basically trying to redefine what gin is with right. this. The idea is that when we say depth, complexity, and balance, we start with depth. And the idea is that it's got multiple layers of flavor. And we describe those as basically, of course, the juniper up front, dominant on the nose. But then on the palate, you start to get some layers of citrus, the layers of earthiness some spice, some floral highlights. And so all those different layers give it depth. 
we go into complexity next in terms of that citrus that I was talking about. The citrus doesn't just come from lemon peel. We have orange peel, lemon peel, we have coriander, we have grains of paradise, all lend a citrusy complexity to it. Yeah. Sure, that citrus isn't one-dimensional. It's a really nice, complex citrus. The floral notes, they don't come from actual flowers in there, but the juniper that we use itself has some floral notes to it. Okay. The uh, angelica root, the orris root, all lend floral highlights to the gin. So that floralness isn't just lavender or just rose petal or violet. It's a complex floral note that comes from multiple ingredients. And just understanding how all the oils and how all the botanicals really exactly. play with one everything with each interacts other. Everything with everything. Yeah. And then each of those ingredients lends multiple notes to it as well. So the grains of paradise I was talking about, they do lend some citrus to it, but they also lend kind of a spiciness to it. The Cuba berry lends an underlying earthiness as mm -hmm. well as some spice. So some of these things are definitely more background flavor, kind of like base notes. And then yeah. there's other things that are kind of like the bright highlights. And balance, of course, is how we finish the description. And that, of course, being that all of these different flavors and layers are balanced. So nothing overpowers everything else. Every time you take a sip, you experience something new. New flavors and layers unfold and reveal themselves. And that's part of what makes it a versatile thing. You can play up the citrus. You can downplay it depending on how you mix it. You can bring out some of those floral highlights with the right ingredients in a cocktail. You can really work with it and showcase different aspects and different facets of the gin by mixing it with different ingredients. So that's basically our thoughts on it. Where let's let's create something that has that depth, complexity, and balance. Yeah. And that's what we did. We spent four years developing this recipe. Really? Literally four years and hundreds of test batches, yeah. lots of trial and error. And it's like, okay, we're close. Let's let's <laughs> adjust this by a milligram. And sure. Let's increase that by a milligram. Let's decrease. And we're literally measuring things at a thousandth of a gram. Were you really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, because when you're doing a small batch, it's like if you're off by a hundredth of a degree launching a rocket to the moon, you're not going to miss your target. You're going to miss the moon entirely. Mm -hmm. So when we scale up from a one-gallon test batch to an 800-gallon yeah. test production, batch. Sure. A little bit off. It's going to be a, a, a big be very amount. pronounced so, at the end there. Yeah, so yeah. we wanted to make sure that it was very consistent and that we had all of those things perfectly balanced. And one of the things we learned is kind of like adding a little bit more salt to a soup. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make the soup more salty. It highlights and accentuates certain flavors and yeah. that in turn can overpower some other flavors or bring out some other flavors. Mm. And so adjusting all of these, adding more cardamom, for example, doesn't necessarily make it taste more intense of cardamom. It can highlight some of the other flavors from right. some of the other ingredients as well. So having that sense of how to adjust all these things, it really did take four years of trial yeah. and error before we got to the point where we thought, okay, this is what we want it to be. Wow. Without asking for state secrets or anything, obviously, how do you impart those flavors into the base spirit then? Do you use a gin basket? or No, the distillation is very classic London dry style as okay. well. So all the botanicals go in, they soak in the base spirit and they're distilled. They stay in the still during distillation. So they're in the base beer during the distillation. Wow, okay. And after distillation, we had nothing other than mm -hmm. pure bull run water, which is the local water source here. And that's what really kind of results in that really nice soft finish and mouthfeel. Mm -hmm. But the whole idea is that classic ingredients, classic technique. Very cool. To create a classic style gin that has its own unique flavor profile. I mean, it certainly sounds like you have a ton of confidence in what you're putting into the bottle because you've gone through so much work. But what's amazing to me is you guys make one product. <laughs> so you have to make sure it's fantastic when it goes in that bottle because you don't have a portfolio to fall back on. You kind of described what you did to develop it, but really, what was your taste-making process? Did you seek out input from other people to say, hey, this is what we're going to be making? Or did you just trust your own palate to know we, we we've trust, nailed it? We, we trusted the moon. our palate first and foremost, but we definitely seeked out some, what I would call qualified opinions along the way. Because mm -hmm. uh, everyone's going to have an opinion. Absolutely. <laughs> Which one and do you, you listen to? You, know, you should listen to them all, but take certain ones yeah. to heart. There were a lot of people involved in the tasting it along the way. Yeah. Being in the restaurant business, I was surrounded by a lot of very capable palates. That's and, a great and, point. And so that's a really nice aspect. Working the last 10 years at Wild was really what developed my palate, both in terms of wine tasting, beer tasting, food, sense of balance, and cooking in general. And so that's one of our biggest tools, our palate, and when we're doing yeah. something like this. That probably helped inform you to know how one spice would play with another spice, too, even while you're creating a your little blend. Bit of that, yeah, but I once know. you distill these things, the essential oils play a little bit differently than when they're in their whole form. And so okay. that's a little bit of a challenge is figuring out how something works after it's been distilled, which is part of why it took so long a trial and error. You can't just taste a, a grain of paradise or a cuba berry and know what it's going to taste like when it's distilled because you're separating the essential oil from that physical fiber of the seed or the botanical. So it, that's what that's part of what took so long. But but having the one product is nice because we can focus all of our time and energy into making this perfect hmm. and knowing that there's nothing to fall back on. 
we don't have an option. Yeah. And we like it though. We also want to be known as the people that make really good gin and do it really, really well. Mm -hmm. That's kind of been our whole idea. And yeah. having this tasting room opening up here that you're sitting in right now, having one product is not really going to make an exciting tasting room. <laughs> so, so part of what we like to do is experiment and play. So there's going to be some play and experimentation for possibly some little little side projects that will likely be tasting room only. But the idea is to keep people interested in coming into yeah. our tasting room. So we're probably going to have a few little side things that are kind of fun to experiment with here in the tasting room. But the idea is really to focus on Aria. The guys in Texas that I was just working with really latched onto the fact that this is not an afterthought to finance a barrel program. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right. He's like, yeah, these guys aren't making whiskey. This is yeah. what they make gin. And that's this what, is that's just all your bridge do. spirit until yeah. your whiskey comes yeah, online. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And he really latched right. onto that. And I never really thought about it like that 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 way. But yeah, he ran off with it. And he was just blown away that, yeah, this isn't an afterthought uh, white spirit to cover the financial gap until the brown spirit's out mm -hmm. of the barrel. This no, is what you do. Exactly. And the way I look at it, Bacardi doesn't make whiskey. Tanqueray doesn't make vodka. Although they tried, it didn't work so well. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Jim Beam doesn't make rum. We want the brand to be focused and, and to represent really good quality gin in the minds of the consumer. Yeah. To where something on the level of Tanqueray or Beefeater. You kind of alluded to it earlier. Your gin has one differentiator that very few other spirits possibly can, and that's the purity of your water that you have access to. I was reading that you only do a basic particle filtering to it because the water is so We want to ensure that there's no sediment, but the water has great flavor, and we're blessed yeah. in Portland. Bull Run is a watershed that is on the western slopes of Mount Hood. Oh, okay. So it's fed by Cascade rainwater and Mount Hood glacial snowmelt. It doesn't go underground, so it doesn't get exposed to high mineral content mm -hmm. uh, like you would in some of the other parts of the country where everything comes out of a limestone aquifer. We don't have that high minerality, so we have a very rich, soft water, and that's part of what makes the spirit completely unique, yeah. and, and it's part of what lends terroir to what mm -hmm. we're doing. Again, I've got all the ingredients there. You'll never figure out the ratios, but even if you did, <laughs> yeah. you couldn't replicate this in New York or Kentucky because the water's going to be different. Gonna be and different. so it's yeah. going to have a different flavor profile. So that's one of those big things that we're really... Yeah, we're really. So the water's of, an ingredient, just like everything else on oh, there too. Well, yeah, it's well, not just well, what we'll you look used at it to. this way. At ninety yeah. proof, it's forty-five percent alcohol, so it's fifty-five percent water. So it better be good. It better be good water, absolutely. But yeah, we intentionally don't carbon filter. We don't do any deionization or reverse osmosis. We want that local flavor. Yeah. And that was a bottle of Aria being opened up. If anyone heard that pop right there, so. <laughs> you know that's just one of the happiest sounds there is. Isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Oh, there nice. <laughs> that's a happy sound. <laughs> well, I'd like to talk about your bottle and your packaging design, because what it was first struck me when I saw a bottle of Aria is how your bottle doesn't look like a lot of other gin bottles. It almost looks like a wine bottle. It's tall. It has a tall neck on there. Well, first of all, is this a custom bottle or did you go with uh, one that's commercially available? This is not. One of the things that we really wanted to focus on with Aria being a bartender is making it mm -hmm. bartender friendly in every way. First and foremost, our price point. In Oregon, we're $23.95, which makes us one of the least expensive craft wow. products on the market. But coming out of the service industry, I know what liquor cost means to a restaurant or bar. And we want to make sure that they can put it on their cocktail menu and their liquor cost stays in line. Mm -hmm. that, that's a big factor. I know we could sell it for a lot more, but it's going to be really hard to get on a cocktail list at that point because the price is going to make it to where the sure. management doesn't want to see a $40 bottle of liquor going into the house martini at $10. The other thing is we want to make it really bartender friendly to use. So the long neck is easy to grab and pour from. It fits a standard pour spout. It fits in any rail. It's not too tall to fit on the shelf. And the idea is that it's a functional bottle to use behind the bar. Yeah. You've literally checked all the boxes that I've ever heard from a bartender, you know, because yeah. they want a bottle that's easy to grab when they're exactly. moving quickly, it's making quick these drinks. easy to open. Uh, yeah. The standard pour spout fits in it. And we are using a stock piece of glass. I would love to have a custom molded bespoke bottle, mm -hmm. but that's going to add cost and it's going to keep us from being able to uh, hit that price point for the uh, bar. We also want to keep that price point fair for the consumer. Yeah. Our idea is to be about a dollar more than Tanqueray or Bombay. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you work hard for your money. And if you want to try something new like my product and you're already buying a bottle of Tanqueray, well, okay, it's a dollar extra. Mm -hmm. I'll give it a try. Yeah, it's local. I'll give it a shot. And you're not asking me to make a huge commitment. Exactly. Sure. It's, it's not a high switching cost for the consumer. Then when you take it home, most importantly, I don't want to be that $50 bottle that sits in the back of the liquor cabinet waiting for a special company to arrive. Right. If you sneak out of work early on a Tuesday afternoon and decide to make gin and tonics on your back porch with your friends, grab that bottle of Aria and, and, and <laughs> pour it. Don't feel bad about it. That's the idea. I want it to be something you drink and yeah. enjoy, not something you reserve for special occasions. And having a stock piece of glass certainly helps us mm -hmm. keep the cost reasonable to the consumer as well. Yeah, It's a hard one you know, when we're a small company ordering 
thousands of units at a time instead of hundreds of thousands, we don't get that price break. Mm-hmm. So you know, somebody like Tanker A can afford to have a custom mold because they're ordering a million units at a time. Sure. And, and they have plenty of space cheaper. to store empty bottles. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. actually cheaper than what I'm paying for this because of the quantities. And I don't get that price break as a small producer. Mm-hmm. So I have to use my resources as I can. Yeah. And, and so it is a spirit bottle. It's designed to work in a bar. It's designed okay. to keep the cost at a price that's good for the consumer and good for a restaurant. Yeah. Well, and, and let's talk about your label a little bit. Did you design it yourself? Did you work with a design firm to I help? did, actually. There's a winery here called Ken Wright, a great Pinot producer. I mean, actually one of the best Pinot producers in the country. And we're doing a barrel tasting. He gave us all hats and it just had a <laughs> signature on it. But you know exactly what it is. You can't read it, but you know exactly mm-hmm. what it is. So originally when we were going through Aria, we were playing with different typefaces and maybe doing something handwritten but legible. And when I saw Ken's signature on the hats, I go, you know exactly what it is. Yeah. It says Ken Wright, even though you can't, it's just a squiggle. It's like, Aria needs to be a little bit more elusive. Okay. So yeah. I, I sat down at my neighborhood bar with uh, several pints of beer and a stack of cocktail <laughs> napkins and a pencil and just sketched out Aria signatures uh, really? for about three hours. Ended up with a stack of cocktail napkins, took them home, scanned them in, and uh, picked the best one. Very cool. Digital, did a little um, digital finishing on it. And that's where it was born. But one of the ideas was, you don't know what Aria is. Most people don't. It's a new brand. Yeah. And so if it just says Aria in Bib Glock Helvetica, you look at it and say, oh, I've never heard of that before. I'm going to buy that beef eater. Whereas if you see this, and we intentionally put the Portland Dry Gin and the Aria in a lighter color that's a little harder to see from, say, that far away. Yeah. You see the signature. It does stand out. the idea is, well, what is that? I've never seen that. I've never heard of it. Get closer to it. Okay. And on the shelf, you get a little closer to see because it's not obvious. Mm -hmm. It draws you in and engages you. And I know that works from being behind a bar. The newer bottles, like the Medoyev bottle when that was new, it just has the red M and the star on it. Yes. People would always say, what's that M star? Hmm. They would never ask what the New Deal vodka is because New Deal vodka is in Big Black Helvetica. Okay. I know what ask, that is. Yeah, and I love their packaging, mm-hmm. but it didn't draw that same consumer interest as the very ambiguous M Star where it said Medoyev in 12-point font at the bottom and white on frost. Mm-hmm. All you see is that big red star. And it, it drew people in. It, it engaged people with the bartender, me at the time. Yeah. And so the two things I'm looking for is if you see this on the shelf – Hopefully it'll draw you in a little bit because it's not quite as overt and obvious and it's a little bit more mysterious. Mm-hmm. If you see it on the shelf, I want people to say, hey, what's that ace squiggle sitting, yeah. there, sitting between the squiggle? aviation and the tank array? Yeah. What's that ace squiggle? Like, oh, this is a Portland Dry Gin. Yeah. That's kind of how we informally refer to the logo as the ace squiggle. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I see it. Because I can't tell how you get Aria out of that squiggle, but okay. Yeah. But that's, oh, that's well, what you were going for. A-R-I-A. His signature doesn't really translate into legibility, at least not the good ones. <laughs> but that was the idea, to be a little bit more obscure and a little bit more mysterious to engage yeah. people, to stir up a little curiosity. Mm-hmm. It's a good non-invasive way of grabbing the attention it, to it. Exactly. it. It doesn't have lights and bells and whistles and something that really is gaudy that, yes, grabs the attention, but then also makes detracts from it. Also. I like to yeah. think our consumer is a little more intelligent than, ooh, shiny tinfoil yeah, and uh, flashy lights. I like to think that our consumer is a little more intelligent and more curious about something like this. So It's a hard one to say whether it's worked or not, but we do get a lot of compliments on it. Our entire aesthetic is very clean, minimal, modern. We just like that very clean, deliberate look that I think is missing from a lot of spirit packaging. And you designed it yourself, so there's only, if it doesn't work, there's only one person to Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we've pretty much done everything in-house, from the product development to the package design to the photography, the really? website, promotional materials, all of the legal aspect of everything. Mm-hmm. We've pretty much done everything in-house, which has really kind of been a part of the fun, is that there's so many different roles and different hats to play, Yeah, different roles to play and different hats to put on that uh, it keeps it interesting. And then for your cork, did you intentionally pick a cork that made that sound? Were you looking for a specific closure? Or? No, no. One of the things for the closure, economy, of course, is important for our price point. And being that we have smaller order quantities, so it's a little harder for us to get those big price breaks. But we also wanted to be quick and easy, not just for the consumer, but the uh, bar. If you're mm-hmm. making a cocktail for somebody and you need to change that pour spout really quick on and off and in and out. And yeah. you, don't, you don't waste time fiddling around with foil or wax <laughs> or anything like that. Right. We wanted to make it efficient. Okay. Quick and efficient. And cost effective. So those are the things that we're really looking at. And that's the right way to do it, in my opinion, at this point. We will eventually go to a um, more traditional metal crampon called an ROPP or or a Stelvin closure, which you see like a wine screw top. We will go to that eventually when we have the budget for the machine to apply it. But right now, all of the filling is done by hand. The metals are applied by hand. The corks are applied by hand. The cap strip goes on by hand. So it's really a very hands-on process. Yeah. And it's kind of fun. Yesterday, we bottled 112K, so we had eight people show up. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, we just (laughs) cranked it out and everyone has a great time. Do you just ask fans and customers and friends to come over? Yeah, on Facebook and and, uh, bottling party. Yeah. yeah. And usually we have to turn people away because we have too many people showing up. It's (laughs) a great problem to have. And that's one of the great things about this industry. Uh People are happy to come in just to see what's going on. You really couldn't do that if you were 
I don't know, think of manufacturing something else. It, right, it, right, you right. You really yeah. have a whole group of people waiting to come work for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, guys, we're molding tires today. Who wants to come by the smelting plant? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> of, course, of course, we pick up lunch and, uh, and then send sure. them home with some gin. But uh, <laughs> it's it's definitely one of those things that there's no shortage of people wanting to come check out what's going yeah. on, which, which makes it fun. Hmm. So. So where are you getting your still from? I know one of the things you talked about, a big thing you were thinking of is make sure you have plenty of capacity so you only need to run it once every couple of months so you can be out there and meeting people. How did you find just the right still to go with? Actually, our still producers are wandering around the distillery right now. Oh, really? I was supposed to meet them at three, so we're running a little long. Oh, boy. But uh, that's okay. Global Stainless is out in Canby, and they've been making beer and wine tanks, custom beer and wine tanks here in Oregon. And they've transitioned into making stills. They built the stills at Bull Run. Oh, they did. Oh, so you're familiar with their work. Yeah, and exactly. you know how their stills work. Yeah. Uh, Thompson Metal Fab in uh, Vancouver actually did the kettles and then they did the uh, vapor path. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have them build the stills and uh, match the stills at Bull Run. One of the things we want to make sure is that as we transition production from Bull Run to here, that we don't go to a different still and change the flavor profile of the product. Consistency is oh, yeah. very important. That's, so, a, that's a great point. So we want to make sure the still is near identical to the ones at Bull Run as possible. And so it's pretty much no choice. We're able to get a very economical, locally made, incredibly functional 700 gallon pot still yeah that's going to make production very quick and easy for us and that's the idea is to build in big production yeah if if we get an order from canada or china or new zealand or anywhere that they want a shipping container we can fill one in two days Mm -hmm. and that's the beauty of it yeah is that we can meet demand and then having a local manufacturer also means that there's ever an issue it's getting service absolutely isn't a huge production yeah it's great because i mean they're here right now we can actually talk with them solve the problems before we even design it anything Mm -hmm. that we want to have custom done it's going to be a really easy thing they're going to be looking at how it's going to fit in to the distillery right now and so we're making sure that it's a smooth installation sure and you don't really get that if you buy something from imported right. from another country. Yeah, yeah. sight unseen or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, because I know you do have to run and I appreciate your time. Oh, yeah. Just kind of a few wrap-up questions, kind of taking it away from the nitty-gritty now of running a distillery every day and just a little bit of looking backwards questions for you. I know this is now your second time going through opening up a distillery. I'm just kind of curious though. Yeah, I'm really of, that stupid. <laughs> So how smart are you? Know? <laughs> uh, huh? Huh? No, I was kind of curious. What was the first time you fired up a still, right? You've done a hundred tests of Aria. You think you've got it nailed. This is the flavor we're going for. Let's crank up a 700 gallon still and start making it. What was it like doing your first production run? Was there kind of an oh crap moment? I really like, I'm about to make oh, a bunch of this stuff. Well, absolutely. <laughs> was it there exciting? Is. And, and the reality or? is from a one gallon still to a 800 gallon still, it doesn't scale up congruently. Yeah. So, so the last few trial and error experiments were scaling it up because we had to make adjustments to it. And okay. we had to make adjustments to it quite a bit because it, it doesn't translate. It's a different size still. It's a different shape still. It's got different dynamics. So once we got the recipe just right on the 800 gallon, sorry, the, uh, the one gallon the one still, gallon. five liters actually, once we got the recipe right on there, what we knew was that's our starting point. Mm-hmm. Okay. After four years, we didn't hit the finish line. <laughs> we hit the starting point. And gotcha. now we have to figure out how to make this commercially on a large scale system. And so there was a little bit more trial and error. Mm-hmm. And luckily, even the stuff that didn't turn out well, we knew what needed to be done to adjust it. And we okay. were able to make adjustments to it and blend it out to where it did come out. That's kind of the benefit of having done those 100 tests before right. then. You knew, okay, we're too much this kind of flavor. Exactly. We know what's we, being we, overpronounced. We trained our palates over four yeah. years and those hundreds of trial and errors that uh, we know exactly what needs to be adjusted and how much to adjust it in, yeah. in a lot of cases. So that makes it a lot easier. Once you get the small batch done, that's your starting point. That's not the finish line. <laughs> so if you could kind of go back in time Everything you know now, just with Aria, not your first time doing it. What's one thing that you wish you can kind of go back two years ago when you're first getting started or four years ago and tell yourself, here's something you're not going to learn for another four years. Let me tell it to you right now. What's that one thing you wish you had known then that you know now? I don't think there is anything. Yeah? I don't think there is. No, I don't think it would change anything. Uh, the journey's been, it's all the, part of The journey's been great. I mean, it's yeah. fantastic. Learning is part of the fun of it. And obviously, I guess the big thing is, budget a lot more than I thought we were going to have to budget for both time and money moving into this space. And that would really just be going back six months and saying, okay, okay, okay yeah, plan on another $100,000, <laughs> right? Yep. And plan on being ready to be here for six months doing nothing. That, I guess, is the one thing I would have done because we're at the point of making sure we've got that fixed. Uh, okay. Yeah. But um, Going forward, yeah. I guess that'd be it. No, it's been great. We really did things, I think, the right way with uh, working with Bull Run. It's, it's been a mutually beneficial relationship that's really helped both of us out. It's been great for Bull Run. We've been one of the best-selling products in their portfolio. It's been great for us because they've done a great job helping promote 
promote and build us. We couldn't have done it without Bull Run. I really wouldn't do it any other way. And being at Bull Run is what allowed us to get to the point where we're in this amazing space. And I think this space is just really going to take the brand to the next level. Yeah, and just it's nice in terms that- of visibility. And then, like you said, you're building a whole community down this stretch exactly. that, that we're in in Portland. So Helping vitalize the north end of this yeah. neighborhood. And I'm just so excited to be a part of it because this is my neighborhood. I live, mm-hmm. I live a few blocks from here and <laughs> this is where I want to be. So it's really nice on a nice summer day. I can walk here and yeah. I don't have to get the in the car. The commute's pretty good. Uh, That's it's <laughs> yeah. great. You know? So no, I really don't think, you know, obviously with the first one, we made a lot of mistakes and it was hard. It was a lot of challenges. There was mm-hmm. a lot of hard things shutting that one down. We had to sever a toxic partnership. That's ultimately why. But you know, all of that was part of the learning curve and all of the mistakes and all the things you do wrong are part of what steers you in the direction to do things right in the future. So I wouldn't want to avoid some of the mistakes I've made, I think. It's made us who we are and it's helped define how we run ourselves as a company, how we handle ourselves as a business. And I think those are important lessons to learn. So I wouldn't want to cheat myself out of those learning experiences by going back and, and telling say, myself something. <laughs> yeah. No, no shortcuts. Yeah. Other than be ready for the city to, uh, <laughs> yeah, just to be, be much more city. expensive and difficult to deal with. <laughs> Have more money. And that's very recent hindsight. Yeah. So you have such a long history in bars and restaurants, and I think your answer is going to be a little bit different than a lot of other people's. But being on this side of the production consumption equation, now that you are the producer, has it changed the way you go out to bars and restaurants? Do you get to go out to them and relax, or are you always looking behind the bar? I can't afford to go out anymore. Okay, well, (laughs) there we go. You have Um, no relationship with bars and restaurants. It it, it really hasn't. I mean, I I knew after 17 years, stepping out from behind the bar was going to be something that was going to be very hard. I miss it every day. It's such a lifestyle and it's so much of who I am that I do miss it every day. But it doesn't change how I am when I go out. I've always enjoyed going out and Mm -hmm. I I love sitting at someone else's bar and watching a talented bartender work their craft. Of course, now I'm, I'm there in somewhat of a promotional capacity for the brand. And so I do have to be out and just showing support for accounts that carry us. I'm not one of those reps that goes out and you see a lot of these certain big reps that only buy their own brands. <laughs> you know, I definitely like to go out to a bar and have a beer or a glass of wine or, or mm-hmm. a whiskey. Sitting around making gin all day, it's nice to have a change of pace. You know, <laughs> yeah. They just say winemakers drink a lot of beer during harvest. And mm-hmm. Of course, last thing they want is another glass of another wine. Glass of, yeah. So, so you know, I, I still drink uh, a lot of other things when I go to the bar. Yeah. But, but yeah, still, that's part of what I love about what I'm doing now is I still have that close connection to uh, the service industry that has been a passion of mine for the last 20 years. Yeah. Last question for you. A customer goes, they buy a bottle of Aria. How should they take it home and enjoy it? Is there one recipe you can share? I definitely recommend orally. Okay. Uh, Of of, of all the ways we've tried, that seems the most pleasant. (laughs) No intravenous Uh, (laughs) introduction of Aria Dry Gin, noted. You know, a lot of people say, well, is this a cocktail gin or a sipping gin? The reality is I've never seen anybody order a gin and just sip on it. The closest thing I've ever seen was a rather scruffy gentleman at the airport order a shot of gin, throw it back and... (laughs) <laughs> after 17 years behind a bar that's the first time I've ever seen that no people don't order gin straight gin's a cocktail ingredient yes. and at the very least an incredibly dry martini that's at least stirred so there's mm-hmm. a little bit of dilution and the idea is to mix it and have fun and play with it on our website right now we have a fairly extensive list of really good classic cocktails recipes how to make them and that's a great source to start if you're looking for something classic pick up a good book The uh, Forgotten Spirits and Vintage <laughs> Cocktails and Forgotten Spirits is a great book Jeff Morgenthal I just put out a great book Barman at Clyde Common oh yes local uh, yeah, Portland bar PDT cocktail books one of my favorites Jim Meehan actually just moved from Manhattan to Portland so oh, wow. he's working on a project over here pick up one of these uh, cocktail books there's so many great cocktail books out there right now and just play around with it mm-hmm. and have some fun and the most important thing is come up with something that's creative and unique and your own and do what you like with it yeah. that's the idea there's no right or wrong way and that's what we wanted we wanted something that's really versatile and approachable and the, make it yours yeah as I sit here now and I sip the Aria I can tell you you can't have it straight <laughs> I'm not saying can. shoot it but yeah, yeah it's very smooth uh, something thank you can really sip yeah thank, thank you. you and finally just where can people find Aria at uh, do you have a website how can we people find website, out where they can purchase and, and we have all of our distributors listed. There's two pages to the website, essentially the learn stuff page where we kind of talk about the ingredients. We actually give you the genus and species where it comes from and, and a little bit of background on all these different ingredients because some of these are pretty exotic. Mm-hmm. Of course, metals, recipes, links to all the different press we've gotten. So it's kind of the informational page. And then on the top, if you click on the get some button, it will direct you to, in Oregon, it'll direct you to the um, state's liquor website, which will tell you what stores have how many bottles by zip code. Oh, really, wow. really a cool resource here in Oregon. Okay. But more importantly... As the uh, only distributor you can have. Exactly. Uh, it's, <laughs> at least that's nice about but, it. Uh, yeah. For the rest of the country, we're actually in uh, about eight states now. We just entered Texas, which we're really excited to be going into Texas. We should be wow. uh, hopefully getting into Arizona this year as well. For, I think that'll be the uh, 10th state. Okay. 
We have the distributors listed, and okay. they're going to be much more able to direct you to a store in your area. So, so say if you're in Southern California, San Diego, call Congenial Spirits, and what stores near Pacific Beach, for example, and they'll be mm-hmm. able to tell you what retailer has it there. Oh, cool. Uh, hopefully, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's what they're. That's what you pay them for. And then yeah. we do also have a few links to uh, some online retailers as well. Caskers in New York just picked us up. Uh, Drink Up New York, also in New York, is selling Aria online. So if you're having trouble finding it, you can always click on one of our online retailers, and they'll be able to uh, ship to you wherever you're at. And those resources are on the uh, website. And where is this tasting room located when it does open? So people so we're listen on the to this, they want to find Northwest you. 23rd and Savior. Savior. Yeah, okay. 2304 Savior, just across from St. Jack and Vsauce. Awesome. And Northwest Portland. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your time you. and discussing our pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure too. Thank you.